This week, Kim and Brian sat down with Emily Abendroth from Decarcerate PA, who has stayed in touch for years with Thomas Gordon, a man who is incarcerated at James T. Vaughn Correctional Facility in Delaware. Emily talks about the ongoing repression and human rights abuses and the lack of a grievance policy that led to the uprising commonly known as the Vaughn Rebellion. She also talks about the work of Thomas Gordon and other incarcerated people at Vaughn to bring light to these concerns through an open letter which was completely ignored by the mainstream media and the state of Delaware in the wake of the Vaughn Rebellion. Finally, she talks about the continued repression that has occurred afterward as the state of Delaware has willfully misdiagnosed the origins of the Vaughn Rebellion, ignoring the serious human rights abuses that occur within its maximum security prison. Hey, Emily, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. Nice to meet you. Same. Absolutely. I'm really excited for this. We've been meaning to dive into the subject uh, of what happened at Vaughn a bit more uh, since we started this podcast. So I'm really excited. So can you tell us about your friend Thomas Gordon, uh, who's incarcerated at James T. Vaughn Correctional Center? Yeah. So um, I have known Thomas for about five or six years at this point, and we met originally in the context of he was doing a very extended um, stint in isolation in 2011, 2012, into 2013, where it would be, he would, in order to keep him in isolation, they would have him do 90 days in and then let him out for 15 to 30, 90 days in, let him out for 15 to 30, so it would never reach a max. And during those times, one of the things he was always looking for was sort of conscious reading materials of all different kinds. And I live in Philly and I work for or volunteer for an organization called Books Through Bars. It's been around for about 30 years that provides educational um, materials and other literature resources to folks who are currently incarcerated. And so he and I sort of began a correspondence and then gradually a friendship in the course of, I'm also a teacher, so I would save all my extra Xeroxes because in the mm -hmm. whole, they also wouldn't let him give books at all, which mm -hmm. often doesn't have Xeroxes, but I started having a sense of what sort of conscious and politicized materials he was looking for and would send large projects of Xerox materials um, in there on a regular basis. Um, and then as various um, human rights violations and incidents were happening with him, way back then, far before the uprising in February. Um, also, he would send communications about those since I'm involved in larger anti-prison organizing in the state of Pennsylvania. Tell us a little bit about the open letter that uh, Thomas penned uh, back in, I think it was March 8th uh, of this year. So shortly, about a month and a little bit over a week after uh, the, the Vaughn Rebellion started. Yep. So. When the actual um, rebellion happened in early February, he was himself in the hole at that time. Um, and I had um, written to him immediately after it just to see that if he was all right, how other people in there were doing, et cetera. Um, and got one letter back sort of affirming his well-being, that he was okay, and then very quickly, like a week and a half later, another one saying that I spoke too soon, um, sort of direct, we're 
being like, um, unbeknownst to me, uh, these police were f fucking people up. They beat anyone in C building that they thought played a part, some not so bad and some real bad. Um, then they went around and started grabbing anyone that they thought was a threat and beat them um, on their way to isolation. So if you guess that they grabbed me, you're correct. Um, and that they had forged a right up on him and brought him to the hole, shock shielded him, kneed him in the face while he was cuffed behind the back and shackled. And shortly thereafter, um, he then was in the isolation unit with a bunch of people, all of whom had received the same treatment in the wake of the rebellion um, and issued that letter that, um, was then published publicly. It was an open letter to the warden followed by a list of requests, 22 requests of changes that they wanted to see in the facility. Um, and among things that he was saying in the, so the open letter at the very front is only about a page long and was signed by Thomas himself. The list that follows of the 22 demands is you can see replicated by prisoner after prisoner and was coming out both before the rebellion, after the rebellion, et cetera, and our very basic human rights demands around um, food access, access to educational programming, the ways in which grievance process are processed or not processed really um, mm -hmm. at that facility. Um, and so Thomas opened that letter by saying, we as inmates know that when we are incarcerated, we lose certain civil rights. What we do not lose and what should not be taken away from us are our human rights. Mm -hmm. Under no circumstances should be treated as less than human beings and nor shall we be expected to settle for such treatment. And so really trying to frame, um, and the very first request slash demand on that list is, is specifically for human rights and sort of names that everything under here, the 21 things that follow could really fall under that rubric. Mm -hmm. um, so framing that that rebellion was not, did not spring out of nowhere spontaneously, um, but was in fact a sort of boiling over of years of abuse, neglect, um, racism, um, you name it, going on as conditions in that prison and the treatment of those held within it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, you mentioned that you had been corresponding with him for a while and uh, that he had been telling you about sort of the abuses that had been going on there. <clears throat> Was there anything on that, that list that stuck out to you as things that had been going on for a while? Um, I mean, you know, obviously everything on that list, but anything in particular that he had been writing to you about um, that appear on there? Uh, definitely the targeting of people who file grievances and the absolutely illegitimate grievance process, which mm -hmm. they're not even really allowed to file grievances against staff, um, abuse staff interactions, et cetera, so that they those go as sort of letters to the warden that are almost never responded to. So there really mm -hmm. is not an internal process by which people could try um, to get either remediation, alleviations of the conditions that they're undergoing, and definitely the the stuff about what's going on, particularly in the isolation units. Um, very early on, um, I had tried to call that prison in 2012 around a period of time um, when he had been sort of mace point blank in the face, had all his legal work confiscated, was placed on the neutral loaf for weeks of consecutive meals, strip celled for 21 days straight in an intentionally freezing cell. And they do this thing where they will only bring the mattress at 10 p.m. and then take it away at 7 a.m. But then 
to further punitively punish people, they will arrive late with it or take it away early, hoping kind of by any means to egg a response out of that would mm -hmm. justify further punitive treatment. So mm -hmm. in this case, back then when Thomas asked to speak to a, a sergeant about what they were calling the mattress matter, um, those CEOs then reported that they found the request, this being the request to speak to a sergeant, threatening and so they shackle boxed him, leaving him not only naked and mattressless in an empty cell, but also cuffed, lockboxed at the waist, wrist, and ankles. So I think those are the kind of, even above and beyond basic human rights, just outright abuse that has been happening there for years and years. And so in Thomas's case, some of those guards are people that he has like years and years of history with um, and of attempting to file grievances and being punitively retaliated for that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, the system can investigate it itself, mm -hmm. right? That, you know, this, uh, it, one, you, you already said it, you said that you know, there is no internal grievance process, that what we have is basically, you know, um, a sham right so that officials can point to and say yes there's an you know there's a grievance process but the grievances don't actually lead to anything except retaliation you know um for against the prisoners um and and they don't alleviate the conditions that they are you know outlining in these grievances and this is a huge part of the problem and one of the things that you know i think um this open letter really gets at is that you know, this it, this thing could have been avoided and that's not mm -hmm. something that people want to hear right mm -hmm. that people are looking for a justification you know um this terrible thing happened where you know um one of the co's uh it died as a result of you know um the situation there i'll just i'll put it that way mm -hmm. um but that we could that this could have been avoided right yeah. right and 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 that part for me is really a difficult thing not only to hear myself saying but to you know to really think about and contemplate in the context of these things that they're asking for because they're not asking for anything that is unreasonable right in in thomas's own words he says we're not asking for the keys to the prison you mm -hmm. know um and you know just asking for food right that they would like to be properly fed right <laughs> it's uh -huh. like this is such a basic thing and they're basically saying oh well you know what we don't we don't care access to programs right because this counters the idea that prisoners are just kind of sitting around and these people don't care about life or about their communities or about bettering themselves or about anything else they just you know they're just there right so anything that comes out of you know uh an incarcerated person's mouth is taken at you know, as um an affront to the system right mm -hmm. that this is a direct challenge to the system and the only way to handle this is to punish that so i don't know if you um have some thoughts about that or if you'd like to talk a little bit more about some of the um the items that are listed in that um in that open letter because i think that you know it uh it's it's worth talking about 
Yeah, I mean, I think you named it in a bunch of ways. Like in many of these cases, the things they're asking for are not only perfectly reasonable, but less still remain in the realm of relatively dehumanizing, right? So that mm -hmm. around even the visitation rights, there's something very heartbreaking of having to ask to be given permission to hold the hand of a loved one above the table at some point during a visit and to have a longer hug, right? Um, yeah, and that to sort of, uh, that's a pretty minimal ask in terms of trying to hold onto some shred of your own humanity and connection and contact with other people who are your friends, loved ones and chosen family. Um, I think that that is very hard to frame as menacing <laughs> um, in yeah. terms of what is being asked for in that case. And many of them, I think, read like that. The, even the wages one um, is, there are much stronger and and still very reasonable demands being made on a national scale for sort of a living minimum wage so that those who are incarcerated can actually uh, assist their families and not be an economic gut and burden to them and actually be a support to it. In this case, this list of requests is asking for five more dollars a month so they can purchase at least minimal hygiene items. Like, mm -hmm. um, it's, it's the, a very nominal demand to my mind in terms of, um, not even sort of putting forth the things that we could also be saying of like, isn't it the if you're going to take away someone's very means of livelihood isn't it even actually your responsibility to be providing each and every one of those hygiene items and not mm -hmm. sort of like how are they going to make four dollars more so i actually think many uh i think all these requests are reasonable and in fact it would be well within the realm of what we should be asking for under a vision of social justice um uh, it makes sense that this is what they're in a position to ask for there on the inside. I think we on the outside can be asking for even more in terms of what are the situations that people inside there are finding themselves, that these are the things they have to be requesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> and even yeah. given that, and, and you know, to Kim's point that the, it, this could have been prevented uh, had, had people been listened to, still the response from officials has been atrocious. It's been almost entirely focused on staffing, on mm -hmm. hiring more staff, uh, on training, um, on increasing security measures and making it harder for rebellions to happen in the future. Um, mm -hmm. And so, I mean, it's just astounding, you know, the, the basically, you know, these are explicit things that could keep something from happening again and they're being completely discarded. Yeah, there's a, this the amazing question of like, okay, how, one, I think they, this and this may be some you all could speak to but that building c itself was actually not understaffed at the time that that happened and that the kinds of things that people were responding to having more staff doesn't stop them from spitting in your food doesn't stop them from calling you racial slurs doesn't stop them from like directly physically abusing you etc the kinds of things that folks inside there were actually um, responding to as conditions are not a problem of too few people on the yeah. yeah. Exactly. I mean, and, and more CEOs will only exacerbate the problem, but this is the, tends to be the response uh, by officials uh, whenever, you know, there's any 
act of resistance is to double down on mm-hmm. the safety and security, you know, uh, argument and to make it about that because that, that, that has uh, currency, right? Um, particularly in this uh, political climate, it, uh, you know, appearing to be tough um, on, you know, um, on people in prison uh, or people that we think of that should be in prison um, is a really popular thing. And we don't, we don't talk about that connection, I think enough. Um, and, you know, when uh, like, I'm looking at the, at the list and girl, don't even get me started on these damn visits because that's something mm-hmm. that, you know, has, has been a major um, problem, you know, from, from day one right Mm -hmm. um is just how you encounter um the prison once you get there right because it's you know you're already um you're already upset it's already challenging you know and i'm usually coming from out of town you know um i uh have a place in philly um but i've been in uh la for almost two years now for much of the time um and when i go for visits you know it's like i I, i've had to fly to get there (laughs) and then i've had to drive to the facility usually for an hour and a half or you know or longer depending on where i'm you know i'm coming from uh so to get there for a 45 minute visit and I have to, you know, the, the travel time and the time that I have to spend sitting in the visiting room, not just me, but pretty much anyone else um, who is in a similar position, uh, you have to be there at least 45 minutes to an hour before your actual visiting time, right? Mm-hmm. If you're even a minute late, you're cut off. You can't come in. And they don't care. They don't care if there's ice on the road. They don't care if there was a traffic accident or anything like that. Like, they will turn you away. And then when you're inside, you know, it's this, as you pointed out, it's like just, you know, the simple act of giving, you know, like giving my sons a hug. Um, If it goes on for too long, you know, the CEO is like, okay, stop that, stop that, everybody sit down, you know, and it's like just infuriating, absolutely infuriating. And you're, you know, for many of the visits and depending on where you are, in a facility, if you're in the back, if you're in a shoe um, or what have you, and you can get visits, um, those are no contact visits, right? Those are no contact visits. And the things that they consider contact visits with that half wall, um, if you are in a wheelchair, that's always presented a problem. Um, Mm -hmm. And there are many people who, you know, go to the facility who are in wheelchairs for one reason or another. and and the wall, you know, there's a fixed bench on the other uh, on both sides of the wall, um, with no real space for a wheelchair. So it, having to navigate that um, basically tells you, you know, you don't want to be there, or they don't want you there, right? Rather than you don't want to be there. Um, so you're constantly getting those messages, and it's just also not a very welcoming space for children. Right. Because it's like (laughs) it's little kids can't sit. You know, they they say they all they have to be seated at all times. But a two year old can't see over this, you know, four foot fence or or wall Mm -hmm. that's creating a barrier between, you know, them and their loved ones. So it's like, you know, it's the accumulation 
of all of these, you know, um, indignities, right? Yeah, indignities uh, and, and unnecessary indignities, yeah, yeah. right? Because that's that's the thing that I think this letter captures is that these things are not necessary. That oftentimes it's an arbitrary decision that is being made often on the fly, um, and then it gets codified. It gets put into the context of you know now this is official policy. Right. But if you ask for, you know, point to the policy that says that a lot of times they can't, you know, oh, well, what do you mean policy? So they're not anything that challenges that that system um, they really take issue with. And and the the as you pointed out, the, the pay increase of um, they're just saying five dollars a month, five dollars mm -hmm. a month, a month. I mean, that that's not enough for anything, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and the way that officials talked about the rebellion, um, you know, uh, was as if they had been asking, you know, to be treated like they were going to a five-star resort or something like that. Like these are not unreasonable demands. And I, I think that that's the thing that, you know, one of the things that I want, um, people to get from this conversation. The other one um, that's listed on here, and I'd love to spend some time talking about this um, in terms of, you know, uh, what, you know, what your experience has been and what you've learned um, over the, the years is about the mental health and uh, the abuse and mistreatment and punishment of individuals seeking mental health treatment um, at Vaughn specifically. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, I think that's one that Vaughn, conditions that Vaughn seem particularly acute um, and particularly brutal and dismissive in that regard, but it's not a, a wild exception in the sense of like the P as someone who's in Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections, the state prisons all got investigated by the Department of Justice a number of years ago precisely for some of the same things that prisoners with mental health problems were being overwhelmingly put in the isolation units, that the we were experiencing deep medical neglect, that the kinds of prescriptions of psychotropic drugs was either variously overprescribed or they were being denied medications arbitrarily in ways that people, you know, in people inside or outside that kind of like you get your meds one day you don't get them for four days after you get them again and it throws people's um, capacity off all over the place and that everything I've heard about fun is that amplified that basically the rampant abuse of prisoners with mental health difficulties um, is widely known and deeply disregarded by COs that there's no training around it and in fact if there is training we could say that it's to the contrary which is to um, very very poorly treat and intentionally isolate um, and antagonize those prisoners with mental health issues. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, like, this might be a moment where, if it makes sense, I could read the, the actual reason why 
Um, Thomas himself got the three felony, criminal felony charges that were just most recently placed on him are precisely in response to him trying to intervene Mm -hmm. around Mm -hmm. the abuse of a particular prisoner with severe mental health issues, um, which in order to sort of disguise their own behavior, they then fraudulently wrote up um, a misconduct account on. Yeah, please go ahead. Mm -hmm. Okay. On May 22nd, Sergeant Beckles was assigned um, as a building sergeant for the infirmary where I was housed. Sergeant Beckles is not only listed on the list of abusers, but he is also the same uh, correction officer who beat me with a steel bar while I was cuffed and shackled back in 2008. For years after that, he had falsified disciplinary reports on me, tampered with my food, maced me without due cause or provocation, and otherwise threatened me and mistreated me. Um, Also, both Captain Willie and Lieutenant Drace came through. I knew once all three of them came together that something bad was bound to happen. Both Willie and Drace are listed on the list of abusers and have been grieved by me for years for falsifying reports and allowing or ordering the QRT, which is the sort of emergency response team to assault, handcuffed, and or submissive prisoners. They ended up picking on a severely mentally ill prisoner. He was discharged from PCO, which is the Psychiatric Close Observation Watch, and was Mm -hmm. waiting for the rover officers to transfer him back to the mental health building. a a building that only houses severely ill inmates. Um, Captain Willie and Lieutenant Drace decided that they would take his, so these are their words, retarded ass back themselves because they had him riled up due to them teasing and fucking with him. At first, he didn't want to put on the pair of size 14 state shoes that they got for him since he wears a size 9. Due to this initial refusal, Captain Willie told Lieutenant Drace to, quote, go get the team for this bitch end quote, ended up putting on the shoes and begging Sergeant Beckles to please cuff him up. Sergeant Beckles told him no and to not bitch up now and to take his ass whooping like a man. It's not a threat nor a fighter. He is severely mentally ill and sometimes cusses people out, but he is not physical and also has seizures. Before the QRT, again, the emergency response team arrived, I yelled to to stand with his back to the door with his hands behind his back. So that's Thomas trying to make it least possible Mm -hmm. that he would be, he said that he would. That boy was scared to death and damn near crying. Once QRT got there, I again told him to have his back to the door with his hands behind his back. He said that he already was. Lieutenant Drace then told all of the psychiatric technicians who sit on the tier and monitor the PCO prisoners to go around the corner away from where we all were. Once they were out of sight, Lieutenant Drace then told QRT to proceed and immediately opened the door and gave the order to fire for the QRT to run in and attack. Of course, this upset me and a few other prisoners, and we all began to call Drace, Willie, and Beckles coward, bullies, and oppressors. And I told them that this type of mistreatment is why they are listed on the list of abusers and oppressors. I yelled for the nurses and psychiatric technicians to write them up and get them fired. I told them they have a duty to report what they heard and what they saw. I told Captain Willie, Lieutenant Drace, and Sergeant Beckles that I would make it my duty to get their jobs taken. What they did next was write a false disciplinary report on me, um, sent it to internal affairs, um, and got them to press criminal charges on me for, quote, threatening a public officer. 
And this, they gave him not internal disciplinary charges, but three actual felony counts, criminal felony counts on threatening a public officer. Um, so in this case, that's a combination. It's a single instant, but reveals two of the things we were talking about, right? Both what's mm -hmm. happening to the mental health prisoner in that case, in which they intentionally antagonize him through this petty stuff of like trying to upset him by giving him a pair of shoes that in no way fits him um, and then retaliating against him when he doesn't want to put them on. And then when some other prisoners are trying to stand up for him or at the very least not see him beaten down, um, that they are filing false disciplinary charges. And in this case, full-on false criminal charges um, against those who are speaking out against the abuse. So in mm. sort of a, a very ripe picture of both of those plant sort of levels of things that are occurring pretty constantly in that space um, and have long-standing histories of grievances against them that have been completely ignored. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But what, what this illustrates is that this is not so much about, you know, the issue with the staff mm -hmm. <laughs> and particularly the medical staff complying with, you know, the request to, you know, look the other way, which is basically what the request was, um, is is just one of many issues and we talked about this in um in an episode recently um where you know the uh, about prison labor and the ethics of you know working in a prison particularly as a medical health professional um and you know how how, how do you let that happen right like how are you in a helping profession and you and maybe that's a question a, a bigger question for another time and not something that we need to address today but it just it's something that you know stood out to me something that i made a quick note on as you were talking um but going back to thomas's own uh well case, but just one tiny thing to say to that in terms mm -hmm. of just like that that is on the one hand complicity by mm -hmm. individual employees there, but on the other hand, it's part of a larger culture of silencing mm -hmm. and fear that that space is cultivating. That Absolutely. is not a problem of understaffing. So yeah. for instance, we have also heard that since that incident on May 22nd, one of the psych, psych technicians who saw what happened um, was asked to leave their job in an unusual way. And essentially they were fired for too readily talking to the to incarcerated people. Um, mm. So that there also is a sense that just so as not to be careful, not to sort of like demonize everyone on staff and presume X sort of thing, you have sort of as a, in a very similar way as happens in many police units, a code of silence that those who dare to sort of step outside it or break it, et cetera, often then find themselves without that job. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. it tends to cultivate those who are most willing to be complicit. Um, mm -hmm. and so we have not just sort of a situation in which, you know, everyone who takes that position is, uh, a terrible person, but that the space itself only holds 
room <laughs> and tends to reward those who are willing to um, keep their mouth shut. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. No, I think that's a, that's a really good point. Um, yeah. And there, there was also an exodus of, you know, a lot of uh, staff uh, post-rebellion too. I think, what was it? Uh, there were 17 uh mm -hmm. people who uh who left and then mm -hmm. shortly after that i if i'm recalling correctly there were like 22 other staff members that that also quit mm -hmm. um so there was the you know the, there was a mass exodus uh from the facility and that could have been you know prompted by a number of different you know factors perhaps fear that you know if there was going to or it, as a result of the investigation that, you know, maybe other things were going to come up, but, you know, that didn't happen. We know that. Um, mm -hmm. Or, you know, there are many reasons why people would want to leave, you know, that job. Um, and I think that, you know, you, you made a, a good point there. Um, how's Thomas doing now? I don't, I mean, so one of the things that's super hard and I'm sure is very familiar to you in those facilities is how, so he went for a period of time, um, starting on Memorial Day on a hunger and thirst strike um, to try to get those charges removed, um, which he ended up breaking after 10 days. So um, started it on whatever that um, would be on May 29th and then went off it on Thursday, June 8th um, and was released from the infirmary on that following Monday, June 12th. Um, and I have since then gotten two letters from him um, and he says he's doing all right. He's currently not either in the infirmary or in isolation, at least as of a week ago. I would not be surprised if he was back in isolation as of this point, but for a minute he re had access to sort of pen and paper and was able to call a family member of his, et cetera. I mean, one of the very hard things about, uh, these about understanding what's happening at Vaughn is the complete cutoff of um, access to folks who are incarcerated in there to be able to tell what's happening. So when he was on the hunger and thirst strike, they that is a moment in which they then put you in a situation where you don't you have no access to pen and paper, you have no phone access or mail privileges and no visitation privileges. Um, initially when I was calling up there, um, they were one of the things I was requesting was that they then at least ask him if they could for um, I'm going to frame this exactly for for him to release permission to tell um, me and others, family members, um, how he's doing. Because um, basically, ridiculously, at this moment when this person is basically on hunger and thirst strike in response to direct physical abuse and retaliation by guards, suddenly they're telling you that, quote, for his protection, <laughs> they can't tell you how he's doing. There's a sudden real concern for his protection and maintaining the, like, parameters of the Hippocratic Oath. Um, and it's pretty hard not to feel cynicism around that <laughs> um, assertion of the of his, for his protection in those moments. So there was a, quite a period of time where no one could hear anything at all. We were able to get a human rights lawyer down there to visit with him while he was still in the infirmary. He's, he's well, he's like of sound, 
mind and spirits and like now back on eating and fluids and has been writing a bunch of things and trying to communicate with people in this moment that he has communication access. But, but that is also, I mean, I think the kind of thing that you were just saying is sort of like, we all know every time we hear one of those things that there's way more behind like 18 staff members left on a single day, 22 mm -hmm. staff. Like there's a reason why you then write your friend or loved one and are like, how are you? What's going on in there? All I'm seeing is this one sentence and it's very clear there must be 15 things going on behind that. Mm, um, at least. Yep. Yeah. yeah, so I think you're, and also uh, you're always hearing everything, even when I am in communication with him, seven to 10 days behind when they're writing. Yeah. So uh, yeah. yeah, it's hard well, to hear that. Exactly. And if, if that's, uh, as you pointed out, if, uh, you know, having access to phones, having access to writing materials and things like that, that's just another way for them to exert control over the information that is getting out because um, the access to paper uh, at Vaughn post-rebellion uh, has been really difficult even for people who were not in C-building, uh -huh. um, who were not, you know, uh, the, the what they consider the organizers um, of, of the rebellion and uh, you know it, the commissary has you know uh, not been carrying paper um, and uh, at least that's what I've been hearing um, so people are having a really tough time just getting access to writing materials um, yeah. as a way to you know disrupt communication and to quell communication and you know that that's the lifeline. And, you know, for folks scratching their heads and wondering, well, why did these things happen? How do these things happen? I mean, you know, this is how these things come about. You know, this is exactly, we're laying out and incarcerated people are telling us exactly what the problem is. But there's a refusal to engage with, take seriously, and listen to you know, um, incarcerated people as if they don't know what's good for them, right? As if right. anything that they have to say doesn't matter. And, you know, it's only, it's, we're just going to focus. Yeah. Yeah. Like they can't be trusted. We're only, we, we can only take, you know, the official line on everything. And the official line is from the people who are basically doing these things. We're saying, look, these are horrible people. I mean, we right. have a real, <laughs> it's like, it's, it's, Infuriating. I mean, that's the only word I can come up with um, at, at, at this point uh, regarding that. Um, so one of the things that came up for me as I was reading um, both the letter, um, you know, uh, again from March 8th, but also the, the action alert uh, mm -hmm. from a few weeks ago was um, Thomas was requesting uh, transfer to a different Delaware facility, either in Sussex or um, at uh, Howard R. Young, otherwise known as Gander Hill. Um, and I've been to both of these facilities and um, uh, I'm wondering, are conditions at these facilities better? Um, does he feel like he'll be safe at these different facilities? 
I think one, they have, they are outright denying that request slash demand because mm -hmm. they're saying that James Tevon is the only one adequate to his custody level. That as a max security facility, they will refuse him transfer. Um, uh, that my, uh, it did seem like uh, hundreds of people called in and it does seem like they are not going to budge on that. So on the one hand, the answer is just like, it, it seems very unlikely that he's going to gain that transfer. Um, I think for, I think there's sort of two questions at stake. There's the question of Thomas as a singular individual, in which case he has long, histories of abuse with particular CEOs mm -hmm. uh, at Vaughn who are a particular threat to him and are incredibly, since that open letter was um, drafted and publicly issued, et cetera, and since it names some of them by name and tries to speak to very specific conditions in that specific facility, um, he has been targeted in a particular mm -hmm. way that it is very possible would not be exactly replicated elsewhere because gotcha. like 15 people haven't been named, you know, et cetera. Mm -hmm. he, he has filed he has filed lawsuits against certain CEOs there from years back in 2008, 2010, et cetera, because of having like being thrown down a stairwell, having his teeth smashed out, having his nose broken, et cetera. He, there are things I think that would conceivably genuinely improve at the level of like, I think people, myself included, were like scared for his very mortality. Um, mm -hmm because of targeting by very particular CEOs because of both very recent relationship things and grievances filed against them and longstanding ones. So I think for him as a solo individual, yes, possibly if he could get out of there, it would make a difference. Not that your those reputations don't travel with you to the next place, not that he would not face difficulties and like terrible conditions with others, but certain very specific things might be lowered or alleviated some mm -hmm, for him, mm -hmm. one of those two other Delaware prisons. The second part of your question is like, what difference does it make writ large, right? Like, what mm -hmm. if we even closed Vaughn and everyone went into Howard and Sussex? Have we really won anything? And that, I think the answer is, it's very reasonable to say, like, maybe not, and possibly even certainly no, right? Like, mm -hmm. that it, the kinds of conditions that you find in the Delaware prisons, or like, for myself, who has way more longstanding connections um, to friends and prisoners in the PA system, um, many of them would be like, I don't want to land in another one of these prisons, like one versus the other. There's, you know, that, like that shift is not so um, major that it actually changes the basic things that I'm fighting or struggling against in terms of, yeah. So I think for him personally, it could make a difference as a larger question of like, what's also going on in these other Delaware facilities, I think you're totally right. It is not substantial enough as a, as a change and, a, and the culture of these prisons, they have been sort of invisibilized from the public eye. They have been allowed 
asked for thing after thing to happen in them and not just allowed, but in fact encouraged in many cases to mm -hmm. cultivate brutality um, and to dehumanize those who are inside them. And that was the tough on crime culture that we cultivated in the 90s and have not found our way out of. And that we don't, like when people, I think people are doing a very good job now saying that like, when we named things like tough on crime or the war on drugs, this is like actually a war on people who mm -hmm. have done drugs, et cetera. And uh, we created uh, a license to abuse people. Yeah. And, and we now have to do some really big, large scale mass mobilization work to decreate that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, this has been great. I'm personally out of questions. Um, Kim, if you have another one, jump in. But I just reacting to the last thing you said, you know, I think it kind of returns to this this theme that comes up on this show often about the um, the tightrope uh, of doing abolition work. And you know, if you think about the letter that Thomas Gordon put out and the other demands that the um, incarcerated people at Vaughn made. You know, it's about addressing very immediate, uh, you know, longstanding but immediate um, quality of life issues. Um, and at the same time, like acknowledging that, you know, just closing Vaughn and, and pushing people into other facilities is not, you know, the answer. Um, and that, you know, perhaps abolition is. Um, so I just, you know, I, th I thought that was a great comment. Um, but I don't know, Kim, do you have any final questions? Um, well, we asked this question of pretty much every guest that we have, so we're not going to break tradition here. Um, <laughs> ask you the same question. Um, what does abolition look like to you? Um, well, I, in um, PA, am part of a, or two organizations, one, Decarcerate PA, um, and another that includes Decarcerate, that is this coalition to abolish death by incarceration. And I think that specifically decarcerated PA really like formed trying to understand that for ourselves, both in the sort of like immediate short term and in the long term. And for, for our group, we tried to frame that as a, as a set of directives that meant one, no new prisons, we shouldn't be building them. And that should include not just like state prisons, but no new jails, no new detention centers, no new immigration detention centers, no new, et cetera, um, that um, we shouldn't be constructing them from here forward. And then our second demand was decarceration. So not only do we build no new ones, but we figure out how to get people home from the ones that they're in. Um, how do we, um, lower the amount of incarceration we already have if we know that like since the 80s we've sort of we've quadrupled and more that what that looks like um how do we start to think about changes not only in physical structures but in policies and sentencing and cash bail and all of these things that will keep people out of them in the first place and then for us the third and equally critical but kind of huge thing was like what is community reinvestment and as we take this money out of sort of punishment retribution systems, how do we redirect it so that it supports those things that actually make safer, healthier, um, more 
insane possible resource-laden mm-hmm. communities. And for us, that would include a huge range of things from like education to rehabilitation centers to recreation centers to like um, job training. Um, and the list sort of goes on and on in that last one. And part, we added that one because we were looking at examples like in California, actually, where people had successfully seen some even legal mandates to close prisons at the state level only to see all that a either redirected to jails or b redirected to uh, to alternate policing systems and so mm-hmm. we really wanted to be like how do we make sure this stuff is not just um supporting a larger surveillance state in another form but actually kind of cultivating the infrastructures that help people um uh, reduce harm in their own lives, including the harm that the state causes. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so I think for us, it was like, it was that abolition had those three prongs. That meant like sort of no new prisons, decarceration, and, and genuine community reinvestment that include, that was, had self-determination within those own, those same communities. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what that looks like 50 years from then, if it's genuinely happening, seems very promising to me. What that looks like in individual moments might be pretty small things, but I think in even right now, it's like we're finally in Philly seeing like, we've seen 40 people come home who got life without parole sentences as juveniles. So it's gonna look like small things that continue to bolster our movements and our see people joining the struggle who for too long have only been able to struggle from behind bars. Mm. Um, yeah. 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 Thank you. Thank you so much uh, for coming on today and sharing uh, Thomas Gordon's story with us, um, sharing the work that you're doing. Uh, how can people get in touch with you and how can they, uh, you know, express their support uh, for Thomas and uh, contact him if, uh, if that's something that he would like? So um, in my so the both of the organizations that I work with, um, people can find online. So if you go to decarceratepa.info, um, and then information on CADB, that Coalition to Abolish Death by Incarceration, can also be found there. Um, and we welcome folks. There also is now, there just started a Delaware chapter of I uh, know, I'm part of it. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the day you could get a it. Delaware CADB. Um, and Thomas himself, they can certainly write to him at Vaughn. Um, so it's Thomas Gordon. Um, and then his number is 455-684. Thank you so much, Emily. Cool. Thank you so much for your time. And Thank you talk so much. Soon.